Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at legalshield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. A couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm David Grasso, and you're listening to Follow the Profit. Today, we're going to talk about crypto. You read about it everywhere, but most of the population doesn't even know what it is. So what is it? How does it work? And where is it going? And all the questions that you were embarrassed to ask, you can ask them here. In fact, I'm going to ask them. Even though I do a lot of reporting on crypto and get quoted a lot in the media, there are things that I don't understand. And this is an important podcast for you to understand exactly what I just said. What is crypto? Where did it come from? And where is it going? So be sure to listen to the whole thing because you're going to need this information if you're going to navigate this very theoretical and confusing world. Joined by a fellow journalist who recently changed careers. His name is Dan Roberts. Hey, Dan, how are you doing today? Terrific. Thanks for having me on, David. So tell me, what do you think of crypto and the role that it plays in our reality these days? Because it seemingly came out of nowhere. Well, it's funny. You know, I've been covering since 2011, uh, back when I was at Fortune magazine. I wrote the first uh, Bitcoin-related story on Fortune.com. So to me, it hasn't come out of nowhere, but certainly... What you said is fair in the sense that it has never been more mainstream than it is right now. Uh, that's sort of table stakes. Like all people is at the very least, you might not be interested in it and that's okay. You might even think it's stupid and that's okay. But I think uh, a larger number of people than ever before at least can recognize this is a real thing. This is going to stay. It is not going to disappear and collapse tomorrow. It's been trading for 11 years. It's a digital asset, and there are entire companies, firms, funds, economies, cultures built around it now. We can drill down if we want into Bitcoin, Ethereum, and DeFi, and NFTs, all that good stuff. But it's not going to suddenly disappear. Yes, there are fluctuations. But everyone at least recognizes this is a real thing. So let's talk about that more, Dan, right? You were a, a journalist, of course, for Yahoo Finance. So you understand that these fluctuations are pretty 
they're much more pronounced than they would be with traditional assets like stocks or real estate. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's a volatile asset, yes, but the truth is that people who overemphasize that and they say it's so volatile, it's so volatile. I mean, there have been some dramatic corrections, but if you zoom out and look at the line, it's up and to the right in Bitcoin's history. I mean, we're talking just about Bitcoin, really ETH as well. Now, for the longest time in the last few years, everyone would just compare whatever Bitcoin was doing to the crash that really launched what we call crypto winter in early 2018. I mean, everyone remembers the last big run up. It was all hype and frenzy. End of 2017, characterized by, you know, grandma at the Thanksgiving dinner table asking if she should buy crypto. And then in February 2018, Bitcoin crashed 65%. And for the last few years, that's the benchmark that everyone compared it to. But then the pandemic happened. And you had a price run up that was fueled by, you know, stimulus checks and the Fed pulling various levers. And it really surpassed the 2017 hype, you know, back in April, all time highs of around 63,000. Now it has halved since then. So, yes, traditional conservative investors look at that. They say it's way too volatile. But again, uh, if you zoom chart, it really just depends on what time frame you want to use. Now, all that said, I'm not trying to sound like a big, you know, flag waver, buy, 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 you know, buy crypto. I don't dispense investment advice. I don't even tell my own friends, hey, you should buy all these coins. I just think that the volatility tends to get somewhat overstated. And, you know, look at what happened to stocks at the beginning of the pandemic, and then they bounced back very quickly. Bitcoin at first bounced back even more dramatically than stocks did early on in the lockdown. And now, you know, we'll see what happens. But again, it's just, it's hard for me to believe that there will be a, another crash so dramatic that it sinks below, say, 20,000. I mean, we're around 35,000 right now. Again, I don't like to make super definitive predictions. And I also warn everyone, don't believe anyone who purports to know exactly what's going to happen next with the price. But I do think that, you know, more traditional Wall Street types who in the past dismissed it or were cautious have embraced it than ever before. They're now dipping a toe in. They say, you know, I've put one or 2% of my portfolio into crypto. And that's something. I think it tells you that there's more institutional buy-in and support than there's ever been. But it's a volatile digital asset. Absolutely. So, Dan, let's zoom out a little bit because you and I come are cut from the same cloth. We lived in New York. I lived there until very recently. How would you explain blockchain and crypto to someone who knows nothing about it? So you were a communicator for a long time on TV. How would you explain this phenomenon to someone who has no exposure whatsoever. I'm happy you asked. I'm happy to do it, and it's what I love doing. And by the way, at Decrypt, that's what we really aim to do, is explain these concepts to a layperson. Because, David, as we've been discussing, there are more crypto-curious people than ever before. And their understanding level is at a zero, and they want to take it to a one, right? So the answer is, I say, when it comes to Bitcoin... It is a digital asset. I don't even like to say cryptocurrency these days. I think it's become a little bit of a misnomer because people aren't using it as a currency. You know, and that's what critics point to. They say, well, the original white paper said a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And I don't, can't really use Bitcoin to buy my cup of coffee in the morning. That's true, but use cases of technology change. I mean, people aren't really using it as cash. They're using it as digital gold to buy and hold as an investment. And in some ways, that makes it not that different from some stocks. I mean, if you believe in Tesla as a company, you believe that Tesla is going to be around for decades and be a successful business, you would buy the stock and leave it alone. You know, hold on to it. 
And that's what people are generally doing with Bitcoin. Now, to back up even further, I describe blockchain to people who know nothing as a digital ledger, a publicly viewable ledger, just like a, a, a paper book that you would record all your checks in, money in, money out, that everyone can see. And it's tamper-proof because it is held up by hundreds of thousands of nodes that all have an equal stake here in keeping the records correct. So there is no one governing party or entity or arbiter that's in control. There's no bank that runs it. And of course, that's the appeal for everyone. Another little analogy I used to make, but of course these days, a lot of people probably don't even understand this one if they're, if they're too young to have used a library. But I tell people of a certain age to think of the Bitcoin <laughs> blockchain as being akin to the little insert in a library card. So not the card you use to take the book out, but if you remember in the front, there'd be a little sleeve and a card and it lists everyone who has taken the book out and the date they checked out the book and then they returned it. And the Bitcoin blockchain is like that. Every single Bitcoin transaction recorded and viewable. And by the way, another thing people don't realize, you can view the Bitcoin blockchain. I mean, it's publicly viewable. You can go to blockchain.info and quite literally see it in real time. And I think that's an easy, free, instant step that a lot of people, once they take it, they say, get a little more. Oh, wow, there it is. It's right there. You know, banking systems and records can be very opaque. You can't just view those. But this is public and peer-to-peer -peer and uh, trustless. And it means that there's no one person in charge. Permissionless, I should say. Well, that's really interesting because I hear a lot of stuff, especially from older folks, that Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, whatever the, the mainstream coins are a substitute for gold. And if we talk to our parents, they always either put gold in their drawer, right, or these days, you know, buy uh, a digital asset that, that, you know, is derived of gold, right? So is this a sustainable substitute for precious metals? Well, I think we should say there, by the way, there are people who are gold bugs who don't believe in crypto. And the retort is they say, well, gold is a physical asset and we know the value. It's used in jewelry. You know, what can I use Bitcoin for? And that's always funny to me because if you own gold, like shares of a gold ETF, I mean, you don't physically ever hold the gold bars. You check your balance and you trust that somewhere there are gold bars and you hold a certain percentage of them. And Bitcoin is the same way. It's just digital only. I mean, you know, Mark Cuban says about it, nothing has value unless a certain number of people agree it has a certain value. So there are people who thought Bitcoin was at 20,000. Well, then it went to 60,000. So whatever the price is, it's because enough people have bought in and believe that that's a fair price for it. So all that is a long way of saying that I think the digital gold comparison is fair for Bitcoin. I don't know if it's a substitute, but it's probably a companion to it. I mean, there are people who believe in both. There are people who like gold that want nothing to do with Bitcoin. And then there are Bitcoin flag waivers who say Bitcoin is the new gold and, you know, screw gold. Uh, Grayscale, which is a, a division of digital currency group led by Barry Silbert. They launched their first TV ad campaign three years ago. I remember covering it. And the ad campaign was drop gold for Bitcoin. You know, fine. I don't think it has to be either or. Now, the follow up to all that is that Ethereum is different. You know, you mentioned Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin. Those are three of the top 10 by market cap. But each one of these things is different, right? I mean, Bitcoin is the OG. It's the first one. And I tend to think it's going to remain the one with the largest market cap. But all it really is at this point is an investment. And by the way, the Bitcoin blockchain, the only real use of it is viewing Bitcoin transactions. Ethereum came along next a few years later was really created by design 
to support a bunch of different exciting, cool business applications, dApps, decentralized apps that can be built on the Ethereum network. And so Ethereum, I wouldn't call it digital gold. I mean, Ethereum is more like a Rails, a protocol for building any manner of business application. And that's why some people who are really into ETH will tell you that in the long run, Ethereum has larger use cases. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it'll be more valuable than Bitcoin, but some people also think that, that ETH will flip Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I've read that and I wrote an op-ed about this that was featured by Yahoo Finance, in fact, that I'm a bigger fan of Ethereum. Of course, I'm not making any investment advice, but just from a long-term perspective, it seems like Ethereum is is just a better option. Well, and we've all seen the coverage of the DeFi world, decentralized finance, which really DeFi is just the term of the moment, what the crypto world always was, you know, these investing protocols calls that don't have a middleman and don't have one person in charge. They are decentralized. But the entire DeFi world really springs from Ethereum. And so there's a little bit of a fascinating political push and pull. I mean, yes, there are people who they're in crypto and they think it's all great, but there are so-called Bitcoin maximalists who they're just interested in Bitcoin. That was the, the alpha and the omega, the granddaddy, and they want nothing to do with all the rest of it. And they think it's all going to go away, but Bitcoin will remain. And then there are DeFi people who laugh and point at the Bitcoin maxis, as they're called, and they say, how can you dismiss all this stuff? Look at how fast DeFi is growing, you know, $80 billion tied up in DeFi protocols, TVL, as the acronym goes, total value locked. But the caveat that I give with DeFi, or NFTs, by the way, you know, if you want to talk about NFTs, that's really an Ethereum thing as well. The caveat with DeFi is that even though the money is big and the money involved has grown very quickly, the actual number of users, of traders, is still pretty small. It's like fewer than 5 million people. And it's really still crypto natives. It's people who are crypto savvy. The DeFi world has a lot of friction. It's not very welcoming to a newbie. Whereas if you can tell grandma that she should own a little bit of Bitcoin, it's pretty easy for grandma to go buy some Bitcoin on an exchange and be done with it. DeFi there's some uh, there's some friction there. But my understanding, if I'm not mistaken, right, is that Ethereum is kind of the backbone of a lot of different coins, right? While Bitcoin is more like the gold of the world. Is that correct? Uh, originally, in the early years, people called Litecoin the silver to Bitcoin's gold. Litecoin, you know, kind of had a big drop. And the creator, Charlie Lee, who was a former Coinbase employee, took a lot of heat when he dumped all of his Litecoin at the price peak. And he tried to say, well, the reason he did that was to do away with anyone being able to accuse him of pumping Litecoin when he tweets about it. Now he can show, I don't own any, but mm, pretty good that he sold at the peak. So Litecoin really fell a bunch of notches, but all that is just a way of saying, you know, I, I wouldn't really necessarily frame Ethereum, even though it is the number two coin by market cap, as a digital gold or digital silver. Uh, what you said is more accurate, that it's really a backbone for a lot of things, a lot of different coins that have become big and notable in their own right, launched on the Ethereum blockchain. And as I mentioned, all of those different DeFi protocols, most of them work on Ethereum. And NFTs, which are blockchain-based collectibles, almost all NFTs are parked on the Ethereum blockchain, although there are some additional sidechain. But the other thing, David, when we talk about you know Crypto 101, that I love to emphasize and remind people that a lot of people get wrong, you used to see a lot of companies or, or banks come out and say, you know, Put it on the blockchain, or we love the blockchain. And it's like when someone just says the blockchain, 
It's a pretty good sign they don't know what they're talking about. Now, they probably mean the Bitcoin blockchain. But my point is, blockchain is a type of technology. Yes, the Bitcoin blockchain was the original one. But there are multiple blockchains. So I would compare blockchain as a form of tech more to cloud technology. Interesting. Yeah, I, had a, I have a friend who's an artist in New York. He's this French guy. And the other day he texted me and he's like, listen, David, I've never made a lot of money. But now suddenly with non-fungible tokens or NFTs, my art got bought. So for people who don't know what non-fungible tokens are, except for that social media headline, what the hell sure. is that, Dan? And it definitely – I mean it was the biggest story in crypto for a while there, really March, April, May. And it has cooled a little bit. But you mentioned social media headlines. I mean about a month ago – a bunch of mainstream sites declared NFTs are dead. And I would caution people that that's not necessarily true yet. You know, time will tell. We'll see what happens. There will be a, a shaking out. But NFTs are basically digital address that you have in a digital wallet that are tied to something else. And whatever it talks about is digital art, but it could be something physical as well. In fact, the earliest forms of NFTs were kind of digital deeds that represented a physical art that was located somewhere. But these are are blockchain-based tokens different from cryptocurrencies. They are tokens like cryptocurrencies, but unlike cryptocurrencies, they are non-fungible. So let's focus on that non-fungible part. If I pull a dollar bill out of my wallet, a paper dollar bill, and I hand you one, and you give me a different one, we each still have the same value, right? It's the same thing. We each have a dollar. Bitcoin is the same way. Bitcoin is fungible. NFTs are non-fungible in the sense that Hypothetically, they should be. Now, there have been some cases where mm, it doesn't look like this after all, so buyer beware, but they are meant to be provably, verifiably unique. Usually one of a very limited batch or one of a kind, one of one. And so what you're paying for really is a URL that shows that you are the owner of this asset. It might be a digital artwork, it might be a music file, on NBA Top Shot, it could be a video file, but it's something located somewhere else and you can prove that you own it. Now, of course, what can you really do with that? And I think this is a fair retort that people who think all this is stupid like to say, what can you do with an NFT? You can share it on social media and say, check this out. Isn't this cool? I own this. Or you can flip it. You can sell it. That's about it. And people who think NFTs are stupid say, well, what's the value? Once you share, I can view it too. So who cares that you own it? Well, Fair enough, but people say, but I own it, you know? It's like owning an artwork, and I could sell it, or I could display it in my home. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. A lot of this is hard to wrap our heads around, though, because, you know, uh, you're old enough, Dan, and, uh, you know, you and I are probably about the same age. Like, like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> this whole virtual universe? Like, we come from the era when mom and dad saved up to, you know, buy the house in the leafy suburbs, and now we're talking about digital art? Like, It's, it's totally fair, David, and, <laughs> and I don't blame people who kind of can't make that mental hurdle of understanding that just in many cases, value has gone digital. 
and that there can still be something that you can't physically hold. I mean, my dad, you know, is older than 70, and, and he said, but if you can't display it on your wall, what's the point? Why would someone pay $69 million for one of these artworks? Meanwhile, I guess you could hypothetically print it and display it on your wall, but that would sort of defeat the purpose of the idea that it's digital only. But you're right. I mean, I remember growing up going to my local shopping mall, Natick Mass., and I loved going to the sports memorabilia store. And they had, you know, Teddy Williams signed jersey, autographed baseballs, game-worn cleats. And if you bought something, you would get a paper certificate of authenticity. And I tell people, just think of NFTs as that in digital form. It is a digital certificate of authenticity. Now, if you don't think the asset that it is tied to is very cool, then there's nothing I can really do to convince you. But Mark Cuban, for example, is someone who has gone completely all in on NFTs. He's obsessed. And the argument he uses is to just understand that value has gone digital, right? I mean, if you believe that a physical pair of sneakers is cool and worth spending money on, or a physical baseball card, well, this is that placed in a digital setting. Well, let's talk about Coinbase, because one of the things about crypto, right, Dan, is that it's a little squirrely, right? You mentioned that earlier, right? That it's hard to like institutionalize something that was inherently, I mean, it's called DeFi. I mean, it's definance, but it's also literally defying the government and our monetary system. I mean, there's a there's an implied meaning in all of that. Here comes Coinbase. Can you tell us what Coinbase is and how they're trying to, you know, make crypto a little bit more boring. There is an irony in Coinbase's success, you're right. And I mentioned earlier the political push and pull. Uh, another thing I find fascinating in the crypto world is there are people who first got into the space in 2009, the OGs, for the specific reason that it was outside government control and regulation and they liked that. But now you have all these Wall Street types who've come into crypto and they're welcoming regulation. You know, they want more regulation because it'll bring crypto mainstream. And it's like, you know, do those two things conflict at all? Coinbase is a great example of that push and pull. Uh, I think it is the closest thing to a household name in crypto. So what I mean by that is if a so-called regular person, a retail investor who doesn't know anything about the tech, that's, all right, I'm seeing enough headlines, I'm ready to buy some Bitcoin. Chances are very good that if they're in the U.S., they're probably going to go to Coinbase. It's probably the only one they've heard of, even though there are enough competitors to Coinbase. And it's the company that makes it the easiest. It makes it feel the most buttoned up. You upload your driver's license, you prove that you are who you say you are, They're, they verify your identity, and then you some crypto, and they are generally holding it for you. They are acting as the custodian. Now, crypto purists would say, that's not safe, you're trusting it to a central party. That defeats the whole point of, of crypto here. It's supposed to be decentralized. And that's why Coinbase is referred to as a centralized exchange, as opposed to these decentralized exchanges that purely run on pro protocols, DEXs. And so there are other exchanges where you can be the custodian of your own crypto, but then you get into the responsibility of, of keeping track of your keys, your password. And most regular people want nothing to do with that. It's just too much work. For most people, Coinbase is good enough. Now, the big buyer beware is they're still not FDIC insured. They insure your holdings up to a certain amount, but it's not a real bank, even though Coinbase is now a publicly traded company. You could buy Coinbase stock. And a lot of people, to, to your point from earlier, people of a certain age, the minute you remove banks from the region, the minute you open that door, it's just too much for them. It's a bridge too far. They want nothing to do with it. And they're probably never going to change their opinion on that. But Coinbase has become, you know, a multi-billion dollar business by being one of the earliest Bitcoin banks. 
And that's a site you can go to to buy and hold and trade some of the biggest cryptocurrencies. Again, for most people, it's probably good enough. Coinbase is probably the site they'll use if they want to buy some Bitcoin. But of course, now there are all kinds of other more traditional firms that are offering their high worth clients the chance to have the firm buy Bitcoin on their behalf. And for some people, maybe that's uh, less intimidating to them. Maybe even Coinbase is too, as you said, squirrely, or they just don't trust it. But I think Coinbase has done a very good job of branding itself as a, as a generally trustworthy place. I guess, you know, this, the show isn't about investment advice, but I've seen a lot of coins come and they're going to have to blur out coins here. But there's more than 4,000 coins these days, Dan. So that concerns me because uh, a lot of people are pumping and dumping. We're seeing a lot of behavior that threatens to give crypto a bad name. It almost reminds me of the dot-com boom in the late 1990s. What are you well, telling, you know, what's the message you're putting out there about coins? Well, you're right that those exist and there are tons of them and most of them are trash. Now, I was also going to mention the 99.com bubble because some of the most successful, long-lasting internet companies came out of that bubble. You know, yes, that bubble burst, but not everything was trash. And so similarly with the crypto market, I mean, yeah, if you said I'm going to buy the top 50, probably 42 of those are not going to prove to be good investments. And I would just argue that the existence of those coins shouldn't necessarily detract from the legitimacy of some of the legitimate ones. You know, because someone created Shiba Inu token and it rises every time that Elon Musk tweets, well, what does that really have to do with Bitcoin and Ethereum? You know, arguably nothing. I mean, yeah, they're part of the same industry, but there are also a lot of scapping involving the U.S. dollar. I mean, that's what crypto people say, at least. Sometimes I laugh at that retort. But it's true, you know, and Bitcoin is an extremely headline-driven, narrative-driven industry. So you're right. When there are hackers, you know, the colonial pipeline hackers, and they demand ransom in crypto, that leads some people to say, oh, see, coin is used for crime. Well, okay. I mean, it's also used to give perfectly decent, hardworking people in countries that don't have bank accounts their paychecks. So there are good and bad uses of tech, and the tech is agnostic. The tech is apolitical. Well, of course, you were referring to Dogecoin, which has been making the headlines lately. But I want to get into this, the the less nice side of crypto, right? Which, of course, I think I'd be amiss not to mention that cash is the most untraceable form of <laughs> exchanging value and com- committing nefarious activities. But, you know, here I'm, I'm recording today, Dan, from Orlando, Florida. Uh, very famously, the Matt Gates case here with our local tax collector in Seminole County, they were found to be using Bitcoin, the specifics of which we are unaware of so far. But, you know, that's taking center stage here. Additionally, you're from Massachusetts. Your senator, Elizabeth Warren, has come out and said, we got to get a hold of coins. We got to regulate Bitcoin. We got to stop it from being used for drugs, prostitution, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, there is a nasty side of crypto. So how do you cover that as a journalist, giving a fair shake to both sides, like potential good investment, also potential bad uses? There is a dark, sure. And by the way, maybe a good way in, you mentioned, oh, you were talking about Dogecoin, but Actually, Shiba Inu coin is this separate coin 
that comes from Dogecoin. So there's Doge and SHIB and all of these meme tokens that have now been created purely based on internet memes. And sometimes when, you know, a, a prominent person tweets about them, the price goes nuts. And all of that is just to say that there's some major obvious risk here to these meme coins and shit coins. And, and so you're right. I mean, investor beware. And Elizabeth Warren has asked that, you know, crypto exchanges like Coinbase, like Binance, be better regulated, and she is concerned about when they're used for illicit activities, Janet Yellen as well. But I think that sometimes that gets misframed by mainstream news outlets as they're anti-crypto. They have not said that. You know, Janet Yellen has not said that she wants pound, just that she wants to protect consumers. And Elizabeth Warren is the same way. Same with going after big tech. It's all about protecting consumers. And I think that's good and fine and smart and that regular will generally be a good thing. But to your final question there, how do you cover it? And back to the meme tokens, it's a fine line. Uh, for example, you know, when, when Dogecoin is soaring because of a Mark Cuban tweet or an Elon Musk meme of the Shiba Inu dog, you know, the Doge meme, we cover it. But we're very careful to say, this is crazy, you guys. I mean, this is silly and crazy, and we're not suggesting that you go buy this token because, you know, drop 60% tomorrow and you lose your money. I mean, investor beware, be careful. And I think that in general in crypto media, there is too much flag waving. Some of the sites that cover crypto are clearly rah, rah, rah. When they write up news, they're saying, isn't this great? Crypto is completely great. You know, we are aggressively neutral in the sense that I don't necessarily think, you know, I'm not out there saying Bitcoin's going to replace the dollar. I don't have a huge amount of my net worth tied up in this stuff. Every writer at Decrypt discloses their precise holdings and it's all very, very tiny. The only reason we're all in it is obviously, at the very least, we're interested. I think the technology is fascinating and I think the tech is here to stay. But I don't say, you know, that everyone should go put their money in this stuff. And there is definitely a dark side, you're right. But as you mentioned, what crypto people have long said is, well, cash is untraceable. And by the way, Bitcoin often gets called anonymous and that's really not correct. It's semi-anonymous. I mean, on, on the Bitcoin blockchain, Many a time, bad actors have been able to be traced because there, there is some information there. You know, when, when I send you a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, it gets recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain. It doesn't. Dan Roberts sent it to David Grasso, but it says, you know, wallet number A32X1 sent it to wallet number BBJ42. And you can easily click that wallet number and see the other transactions I've made. And so it is often traceable. And in some ways, it's more traceable than cash, you know, that people use for drug deals. Again, the Bitcoin blockchain is completely public and viewable. So I guess that's just a long way of saying there are a lot of conceptions about the space. You know, yes, it's often used by hackers and by scammers. So what? So, Dan, you stole my line. The reason why journalists call me to quote me is because I neither own a lot of Bitcoin. I own $8 worth of Bitcoin. And I'm neither pro nor anti. So you're on to something. Because I see a lot of flag waving. And then I see like, oh, this is bad, as Warren Buffett once said. Worse than rat poison, right? And really, this is unavoidable. This is an unavoidable development in finance. Whether you have money parked in it or not, it's like arguing about the cloud above your head. And and it's also <laughs> that's the way I well, see it. It's also a symptom of our larger political moment, right? Which is that people generally have whatever their long held beliefs are, and they just amplify things, developments, news stories that confirm 
the beliefs they already have. So the people who think Bitcoin is horrible and it's a scam and it's a fraud, you know, Noriel Rubini, they don't want to hear anything else. They just keep screaming and respond, you know, it's a scam, it's a scam, it's a scam. And when the price rises, they continue to say it and they'll continue to say it until the cows come home. And then on the other end, that's no good either. The people who believe this is the future and, you know, down with fiat currency and the government's so stupid and, you know, F the Fed. Well, that's an echo chamber as well. So like most things, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Wow. That's the first time I've heard that in media in a while. <laughs> I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. So, Dan, how do you create balance in your coverage, right? Because I imagine you have members of your staff that are very pro-cryptocurrency and other members that are very anti-cryptocurrency. And maybe they're not very forthcoming about their views, but it comes out subtly in their coverage. Well, you're right. We have some writers on staff who are not huge crypto flag waivers. They're very skeptical. I wouldn't say they think it's stupid, but... They think in many cases it's irresponsible and they don't think this stuff is the future. And I generally have a sense of all of our writers' views. And I think it's an asset to have on staff. I think that's great. I think there are some crypto sites where everyone there loves crypto and this stuff is the future and to the moon. So when we cover developments, we try to just say, here's what's happening and explain it and explain the significance, but not necessarily, you know, an ain't it grand? So one thing I've really hammered home in the five months since I took over the site is anything that we cover, is it news? Because every day there's a flood of news in the crypto space. There are a lot of pitches we get. But just because it's new, that doesn't mean it's interesting. So is it new? And also, is it significant and interesting to a broad number of people? Because a lot of press releases aren't that interesting and we shouldn't cover that. So when we cover something like, you know, Vitalik Buterin dumped all of his SHIB coin, Shiba Inu coin, and the price crash. <laughs> we are very deliberate about, hey, by the way, what is SHIB coin? Here it is. Here's what it was created. Here's what that means. Why did Vitalik dump it? Well, here's what he said about it. Why did the price drop? Here's why the price dropped. Here's what it might mean for the future of the token. We don't say the price dropped, but don't worry. It'll go back up. Bye, bye, bye. Uh, we try to just hold the reader's hand and explain things because when I think of sort of the ideal decrypt reader, there are multiple buckets. There are people who already know all about crypto and they read about it every day and I'm reading our site to discover news of the day. But then there are also people, as I mentioned earlier, the crypto curious who, who want to have questions answered. They're not experts, but they're interested and that's great. They want to learn more. And that's why, you know, this section of our site called Learn where we have explainers on technical concepts is really important. I think it's as important as our news coverage. So all of that is just to say that our writers' views run the gamut. Everyone discloses their holdings, and almost no one on staff has a large amount of crypto. You know, I own one Bitcoin that I bought years and years ago to play with as a reporting tool. But we all cover the news, and we explain those concepts, and we do it uh, neutrally. 
and fairly. And I'd like to think that we are the least biased crypto news site of the bunch. So one of the things that isn't very reported is that political parties accept Bitcoin as donations and crypto is starting to invade our political space. Do you guys cover that? We do. It's interesting. For a while there, it was a very small number of candidates who would accept crypto as donations. And so every time one of them did, it became a news story. You know, there was Eric Swalwell uh, who first accepted it. Of course, Andrew Yang, who is running for New York mayor, is a big crypto guy. Uh, although, interestingly, now the front runner is really, uh, he, he kind of beat Yang at, at his own Yang gang game. Very pro-Bitcoin. <laughs> um, oh, politics. But, right. But there are complications with accepting it that a lot of people don't. For example, a lot of people think it's totally untaxed. Well, that's not true. Starting three years ago, the IRS began explicitly asking people to disclose your crypto gains on, on your taxes if you sold at a gain or at a loss. Uh, you don't have to disclose if you just bought some and held on to it. But uh, all of these things are more examples of the various misconceptions, you know, that it's untraceable, that it's a scam or fraud, that it's only used for crime, that it's tax, that it's not taxed. You know, that's not true. So I think some candidates are still hesitant to accept it. It's not everyone. But you're right that it's become more commonplace. So that's A. B, that's part of the politics here, is what are their views on crypto? I think more than ever, candidates are sharing, you know, wink of it, whether they want to regulate it. Uh, Donald Trump got away with saying almost nothing about it in his four years in office other than one tweet, famously, where he said, you know, I do not like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but Anthony Scaramucci, uh, whom we've interviewed at Decrypt multiple times, he told us that he suspects Trump did not write that tweet. And that that was just written by someone like Mnuchin or someone on the economic side who, who wanted that out there. So I don't really know what Trump thinks of Bitcoin, but I remember when he first took office, a lot of the Bitcoin people thought that Trump was going to be this great friend to crypto. That didn't really happen. We also don't really know what Biden thinks of it, but certainly Biden's pick for SEC chair, Gary Gensler, he is thought to be pro-crypto. And that has led a lot of uh, investors to hope that a U.S. Bitcoin ETF will soon be approved. But we'll see. You know, we keep waiting. So let's uh, what would you do, Dan, if I made you czar of America with crypto? Because obviously we do need some regulation, but I'm I'm personally skeptical of of government regulation. It seems like they always get it wrong. And a lot of the magic could go away if they try to reel it in. So how do we preserve the magic but minimize a lot of the, you know, the nasty stuff? Well, you're right that in many cases when Congress is trying to regulate a form of tech, first they have to learn about it. You know, first they have to be educated on it to understand it enough to regulate it. I mean, that's why you see, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey testified before Congress and they're basing some form of, let us help you regulate us. You know, we'll show you how to regulate. It's kind of funny. <laughs> that, you know, was, that, was, that was a show, Dan. <laughs> totally. Um, now, what would I do? That's a great question, David. No one has asked me that. I mean, I would probably uh, demand that the biggest crypto exchanges uh, share their financials. You know, if that means all of them going public, fine. You know, Coinbase is now public. There's a company, uh, Binance, which is actually the biggest crypto exchange in the world by volume. And Binance doesn't disclose where they're headquartered. They say they have no headquarters. And for a while, it looked like they were headquartered in the Caymans. For a while, it was the Seychelles. But both of those countries have come out and said, nope, Binance is not licensed to do business in our country. Well, so where is it based? And if you don't know where it's based, 
how can you regulate it? How can you say these are the rules that Binance has to follow? So Binance has been very uh, adept at dodging regulation. I would probably move to make all the exchanges uh, share and report their financials. That doesn't necessarily mean reporting all the info on all their customers, because what crypto purists hate the most is the idea that their, their info is going to be reported, because they say that defeats the, the whole proposition and, and you know idealism of crypto being outside government control. So you want a little bit more regulation. And then when it comes to you know how the government approaches it, they need to monitor these ransomware attacks that usually ask for Bitcoin as, as payment. You know, they are not doing enough to, to crack down on the ransomware. Of course, the problem is whenever the uh, safeguards advance, so do the hackers. You know, the bad actors appear to move more quickly than the good guys, so to speak. So there's a lot to be done in terms of cleaning up that aspect of it. But you'd also want to not have the government clamp down such that they're restricting innovation. I mean, don't get in the way too much of these companies and see the, the benefits and the value in fostering innovation in this space. Yeah, but, you know, banking, it's KYC, know your customer. You can't have it both ways. Either crypto is mainstream or it's not, right? Like, so I don't understand the demands of the community. Like, either you're going to institutionalize it or you're going to be illegitimate. There's no, there's no halfway point here. So either the exchanges have to practice what Chase Manhattan does, right? Well, that's true, and it's not what crypto people want to hear. And honestly, it's going to be a great battle because, as I mentioned earlier, this is the tension between people who, you know, I was at the, the Bitcoin Miami conference a couple months ago. Enormous. It was the biggest in-person Bitcoin conference ever. And, of course, there were tons of funny T-shirts and signs to see. And one of the t-shirts I saw said, KYC and AML is the crime. And it's like, ha ha ha, come on, guys. I mean, come on. There are people in crypto who, you know, they think that KYC and AML is unjust. KYC being know your customer rules, anti-money laundering. But you're right. I mean, if, if crypto exchanges want to be banks, but for crypto, they're going to have to fall in line with this stuff. But of course, many of them won't. They would rather exist in the Binance-like limbo, where they're making big money and they have tons of customers and it's customers obviously of a certain cloth who don't mind that they're not complying with government regulations. So when you say you can't have it halfway, well, that's why landscape is going to be those who choose to go above ground and be buttoned up and be friendly with the regulators and comply. And then those who choose to not do that. And obviously, if you choose not to do that, you're going to be limiting yourself to crypto purists who don't mind that or who like that. That's the appeal to them. But there's going to be a real shaking out here. You're right. And can the government, will the government try to, and can it, go after the exchanges that don't comply and don't practice these safeguards? Hard. Hard to do if you don't know where their headquarters are or who's really behind it. And never mind the exchanges. There's some cryptocurrencies like Monero that are just completely anonymous. Can that fly in today's world? Those are privacy coins, you know, at, at our decrypt vertices, you know, Snowden loves those privacy coins. Monero, Zcash, and his whole thing is privacy. So you're not about to see KYC and AML when it comes to Monero, but that's the use case. So, you know, can they get away with it? Yes, they have, and they'll probably continue to. But that's why there's such a, a striation between the different levels of investors. Even people who are going to have to be convinced to buy Bitcoin even 
They are not going to be investing in Monero and Zcash and Dogecoin. And that's okay. So there's a real uh, risk profile. How much risk are you willing to take on? So can you tell me a little bit about Bitcoin mining? Because it seems like so theoretical to us and we read about it and we know big governments like China have moved to ban it. What is it and why is it in the news all the time? Sure. So let's go back to the definition of blockchain, right? This publicly viewable ledger, a record. That record is upkept. The network is upkept by the miners. And so if the idea of Bitcoin is digital gold, the analogy really works because there's the gold. And what they're actually doing isn't mining the Bitcoin per se. They are mining, uploading, keeping track of the records of Bitcoin transactions. So the way you Bitcoin mine is with large, expensive computers. They don't look anything like the computers you and I are on, but they are machines that do use a lot of energy and electricity. That's a problem a lot of people have with it. And those machines are on all the time, 24-7, racing to solve mathematical computations. And basically, if your Bitcoin mining your machine is the first to solve a certain equation, you've won the right to, to mine a bundle of transactions. So this is also why it's so intuitive that it's called the blockchain. It's a chain of blocks. Every block is a bundle of multiple transactions that were done in Bitcoin. So if I send you $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, the record of that transaction is included in a block of other transactions. So what miners are actually doing is uploading the record of that bundle of transactions to the blockchain. And to do it, they get a small reward that is a tiny amount of new Bitcoin. That's how new Bitcoin is created. And the backlash that you're seeing now is that this process uses a lot of electricity. And don't let any you know, Bitcoin flag waiver tell you it doesn't. It does. It uses a lot of electricity. And it doesn't look likely to change for Bitcoin anytime soon. But when it comes to Ethereum, which is currently mined in the same way as Bitcoin, Ethereum is soon transitioning to a new method for mining that will not use nearly the same amount of electricity. And so that's why a lot of people are pleased about that. Soon Ethereum mining will become more sustainable. It's gonna to move to proof of stake rather than proof of work. But your listeners don't even need to understand that. All they need to understand is that mining is expensive. Some regular people have tried to get into mining, but it's not really going to be profitable for you for a long time because the machine is so expensive and because you're not right to upload every block. You're competing with huge mining farms, you know, operations that have just tens of thousands of mining machines, computers that are running 24-7. Most of those Bitcoin mining farms were located in China, but now China is cracking down, so they are going elsewhere. And they go where there's cheap power. That's correct. They go where there's cheap power. Of course, the cheapest power is coal, which is not very good for the environment. But it's better for the environment if they use renewable energy like hydropower. And it's not quite clear what percent of the world's Bitcoin mining already uses renewable energy. If you, you know, grab a report from a Bitcoin firm, it'll say 80% is renewable. See, it's not a problem. But, of course, they're talking their book and they're investing. If you try to get a report from a more neutral place, it'll tell you that only like 37% of the world's mining is using renewable energy. So it has to get better, that's for sure. But people think it really will. And that then those concerns about the energy use will go away. Well, that's good to know that Ethereum is moving away from that because that is definitely a legitimate yeah. concern. I want to end, Dan, with the way our conception 
of cryptocurrency and really the virtual sphere has changed because of the pandemic. You know, I'm pretty sure I've seen you in real life probably a few times, but this is the first time you and I have actually spoken to each other. And this is virtual. And this is because of the pandemic fundamentally, right? This is this has become normalized. Do you feel like these cultural changes have really influenced our view of digital assets in, in general? I think mostly the price surge that we saw was really tied to what was happening with the economy and with stimulus checks and with the Fed. You know, it, it also was prompted by quantitative easing. I mean, people like to say there's no central bank of Bitcoin. No one's going to suddenly create, you know, Bitcoin easing where they pump out a bunch more Bitcoin. It's a capped supply. And that's the appeal as an investment. But you're right. I think that the uh, embrace of crypto, which happened in 2020 and really accelerated more than ever, is definitely a part of the larger movement. You can throw in the retail investor revolution, the Reddit investor, Wall Street bets, the GameStop short squeeze, the rise of Zoom, the rise of remote work. It's all part of the same movement. You're right. Now, there was an early tweet early in the pandemic or that was recirculating from Srinivasan, who was a Coinbase exec. Now he's not at Coinbase anymore, but he's a little bit controversial. You know, he likes to troll on Twitter. But he had tweeted back in January 2020. So before the U.S. really understood and was admitting that COVID-19 was a problem. And he shared a news story about COVID-19 and he said something like, what if this is the big one, the global pandemic, that excites a number of pre-existing trends? And I mean... The tweet looks brilliant in hindsight, and he mentions remote work, video conferencing and telecommuting, uh, you know, social life changing, a decentralization of finance and of offices. And I think he was right. Now, my point being, the reason I mentioned that tweet, some of this stuff was already happening. I mean, you know, Zoom wasn't created during the pandemic. These were businesses that already existed, and there are some people who were working remotely before COVID-19. But it has dramatically accelerated. And in some ways, I think certain uh, effects of the past year and a half will never go away. Now, that said, I also think some of them have been exaggerated. Like, I don't think the office is dead forever. And I don't think all things are better on Zoom. You know, you and I are making this work, but I suspect it would be a deeper, better connection if we were on stage face to face a few inches from each other having this conversation. Right. So I'm still a believer in many ways in in person. Well, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like you would be more of your mass whole self if I were right there in person, right? It gets dulled through video, right? I love Massachusetts, so, and I love people from Massachusetts because they tell you the truth. Yeah. Uh, where can we find out more about uh, Decrypt? Thank you for asking. Uh, we are at .co, so we are decrypt.co, and you can find us at Decrypt Media on Twitter. You can find me at Reed Dan Wright. But the best thing to do if you really want to get all of your crypto news every day is our mobile app. Our app is clean, great UX, great tech. So I encourage everyone to download our, our free app. Man, that's a different interview, Dan. I mean, getting a, your app together, congrats on that. That is no easy feat. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, our tech people well on that note, great. congrats. I sincerely appreciate your time. I know it's uh, valuable and all the best from all of us at Follow the Profit and Bolt TV. Thanks so much. Great talking to you. So that was a really fun conversation with Dan. Dan's someone that I've seen before. You know, as someone from the New York media space, all of us kind of know each other. The thing about media is that it's not really an industry that makes a lot of money. But it has a lot of power. 
We get to decide the culture. And that's really the problem with media, right? And that's why it's really important what Dan is doing these days, which is giving you a balanced view on crypto. Really, crypto is something that never mind the general public, politicians and regulators don't understand what it is. And Dan made an excellent point. How do you regulate something that you don't understand? And this fundamentally boils down to the biggest problem we have right now in our society. And that's the elephant in the room, which is people are living longer and the people who are pulling the levers of power are generally older than they used to be. And I'm, of course, referring to my parents' generation, the baby boomers. And they have a lot of good intentions. They're our parents. They're people we love. But they really don't understand how the world works anymore because the world has changed. The pandemic has accelerated that pace of change. And one of the things that is really changing everything is the digital sphere. Everything's going digital. And baby boomers really don't understand how that works, what it is, and they default to criticizing it, at least most of them. But really, crypto isn't something that we should be pro or con. Crypto is something we should look at and try to understand to protect people consumers, to protect us from being scammed, and also to build a future. Crypto is an essential part of our financial future. The US dollar, fiat currency, currencies backed by governments are really in danger. Their credibility is in danger and the whole conception of value is in danger. And young people are much more open-minded. We understand that a lot of things are imaginary. They've just come to be part of our culture. Is gold really valuable? Or did thousands of years ago, we decide it was valuable? The same thing with stocks. A lot of big corporate is run in such a way that really doesn't make any sense. They're not even focused on making money half the time. So why is crypto so revolutionary? It really isn't. It's just like any other form of progress. The first time that you hear about something, you really try to block it out and say, no, that's an extremist view. That's an extremist outcome. But more and more, we see that tokenization, and I'm not talking about culture, literally creating digital coins is going to revolutionize the way we think about money. While you're at it, you can start revolutionizing the way you think about everything. We are in a period of rapid change, socially, culturally, and economically. And cryptocurrency is just one of the things that is completely demolishing any concept that we had of storing our hard-earned money and planning for the future. The older generation needs to stop and think, maybe I don't understand this, but maybe, just perhaps, it's the way of the future and I should be open-minded. And in the meantime, let me regulate it properly in order to minimize the bad effects, but to create a future in which America can remain the most relevant country on earth. And that's my take on crypto. And by the way, I barely own any. Thanks to all of you for joining me as we all follow the profit together. I'd like to thank my team of producers, as well as my executive producers, Debbie Myers and Newt Gingrich, of course, the former Speaker of the House. Follow the Profit is a production of Gingrich 360 and iHeartRadio. Download us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the Gingrich 360 Network.
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.